0: Well, you should have your Bibles open to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you do, would you shout amen? amen? Amen. Well, let me welcome you to week number 7. This is week 7 of 10 where as you know all summer long we have been and are studying through the books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And by now, I am certain that you are keenly aware of and will forever be aware of and will never forget what is the theme of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, both first and second Thessalonians. What was his theme? I want you to shout it out. And because I love you, I'm going to give you a cheat sheet up on the screen so you can read it, but you'll never forget it. Okay, here it is. There it comes. There it is. Say it with me. Jesus is coming again. That's the theme of these two letters. I know that you know that by now. And I also know that you know that the fact that Jesus is coming again should challenge us, should call us to live in very intentional ways. This has been the focus of our study all summer long. The fact that he's coming ought to cause me to live in in particular ways as I wait for his arrival. So we've talked about a few of those things. We've talked about the importance of knowing and obeying God's word. That the nearer we get to the coming of the Lord, his word should become all the more precious to me. It should be so precious to my heart, so treasured that I would want to read and study and know and live by the Bible. We talked about the superlative of showing brotherly love, that as we near the coming of the Lord, that we should not isolate ourselves from one another, but we should lean into one another and demonstrate brotherly love. Last week, we talked about the priority of growing in holiness, that Paul says that we ought to be living in such a way as to please the Lord as we near His coming. And in fact, we looked at Titus chapter three last week, where Paul wrote to Titus that every person who has this hope in him, uh, in Christ, that he's gonna come and get us, we should be purifying ourselves because he who is coming to get us is pure. So we talked about sanctification and growing in holiness as we near the coming of the Lord. That's a few of the things that we've talked about. Today, we're going to add to that list, and I want you to go ahead and jot it down, and then we'll see it in the text. Today, we're going to see the importance of working. Working while we wait. And as you get that written down in your notes somewhere, and I'm so grateful you're note-takers, by the way. You are not sermon listeners. You are students of the Scriptures, and so you, I love it when you come with your Bible in hand and your pen and your pad and you're ready to take notes as God speaks to you from his word. Well, let's, uh, let's read 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse number 6. I invite you to follow along. Verse number 6 says, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walks disorderly and not after the tradition or the teaching which he received of us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, or follow our example. For we did not behave ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for nothing. Uh, But we worked. We worked uh, with labor and travail night and day so that we might not be chargeable or a burden to any of you. Now, not because we did not have power or authority. Uh, Paul could have said, I'm the apostle, you should take care of me. But he said, it's not because we didn't have that authority, but rather because we wanted to make ourselves an example unto you to follow. For even when we were with you, this is what we commanded you, that if any person would not work, neither should he eat. For we have heard that there are some which walk among you disorderly. "...working not at all, but they are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and they eat their own bread. But you, brethren, be not weary in well-doing, and if any man will not obey our word by this apostle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed or embarrassed." Verse 15, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, I want you to take your pen, and in this text that we've just read, I want you to circle three different times in this text the same word. And it's the word disorderly. I want you to circle the word disorderly. Now, if you have a more modern translation of the Bible, it will say idle or idleness or unruly. But it, they all mean the same thing. Look at verse number six and circle it there. He talks about every brother that walks disorderly. You should circle it in verse number six. Again, you'll see the word disorderly in verse number seven. And then again, down in verse number 11. Do you see it there? Uh, there's some which, among you which walk disorderly. Disorderly. Now, the root word of this word disorderly is the Greek word tasso, and it's a word which means to set in order or to align, um, to align in a correct way. When, when the Bible talks about order, this word tasso it simply means what has been commanded by God or what has been ordered or set in place, arranged deliberately by God. So to walk orderly, For a Christian to live in a way that is orderly is simply to live in a way that is in alignment with what God has commanded, that our lives would align with what God has ordered or with the way that God has arranged for us to live. Now the opposite of that, these who were living disorderly, the opposite of order then would be to, to live in a way that is not in keeping with what God has commanded or arranged, we would use the word chaos, there's order, the opposite of order is chaos, the, the opposite of arranged, arrangement is confusion, and so to walk disorderly is to walk in a way that is, that is out of line with what God has commanded, or we would just say to walk to be out of order. In the same way that a judge in a court of law might pound the gavel and say, you are out of order. Paul says that we are to walk in a way that is orderly. And in fact, he says in this passage that the church should take note of those among them who walk disorderly and that they should lead them back into order. And we'll talk in a minute about how that leading is to happen. But before we get into this specific text as it relates to our work, I wanna talk to you for just a few minutes about this divine attribute of order. Write this down. When you think about your God, you should know that God's nature is absolute and perfect order. This is one of God's attributes, that that in, in God there is no disorder, there is no chaos. There's no randomness or there's no confusion. God exists in absolute and perfect order. And you see this in so many different ways. Let me suggest a couple of ways that you can see God's order. In the first place, we see God's order in his existence as a divine trinity. That God exists completely self-sustaining, completely whole and complete in and of himself with need of nothing and need of no one. And he has in the Godhead arranged himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect divine order. It's one way in which God displays or demonstrates His order, his orderliness. Another way that we see God's order is when we consider creation, the universe in which we live. You cannot look at the order of our universe and not know that there is a divine uh, creator who must put that uh, universe in all of its precise and perfect order. When you consider the sun and the distance of the earth from the sun and the axial tilt of the earth and the rotation of the earth as it orbits the sun in order to support an atmosphere that can support life. All of these things display the creative order of our God. Now those are just a couple of ways where you see that God is a God of order. In fact, the Bible says this plainly in 1 Corinthians 14.33 where the Bible clearly says, for God is not a God of disorder or confusion. God is not a God of disorder. Rather, he is a God of order. So what does that mean for us? In practical terms, what does it mean in my life when I say that this God uh, whom the Bible reveals to me is a God of perfect order? Well, what it means is that when the presence of God is brought to bear on a life, or a culture, or a family, or a community, or when a person or a people begin to submit themselves to the, to the authority of God and the instruction of his word and his ways, that when that happens, the order of God is brought to bear on the chaos of that life or of that culture. What it means is, is that any circumstance, any situation can be brought into order by the presence of the God of order. Does that make sense? If you would say today, you know what, my family's in a bit of chaos. Let me suggest to you that you, as a family, bring yourself under the authority of the God of order and you will find order beginning to express itself and be seen in your family. This is true of a person, it's true of a family, and it's true of a culture. In fact, speaking of culture, Many of you know that God's order, which is expressed in so many ways very simply in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, that God's order in the law was the primary influencer in ethics and morality and law in the development of Western civilization. And particularly in America, our very close attachment to God's order expressed in his law, that is how we should relate to one another morally, how we should relate to God, that in America's founding, we were so tied to this declaration of the God of order that the, that the culture, the society, the nation that was born for 200 plus years, was by and large a good and and even godly nation. And yet, all of us would have to admit that the further our culture moves from the God of order, the more we sink into chaos and confusion. I mean, who among us could argue the fact that that this current condition that we're in as a nation, and I don't even really know exactly what we should call it. I mean, it's anarchy in some cases. It's this malaise or sickness that we have as a culture. Who could argue that it must be the result of our, our intentional move away from the God of order? And the chaos of our nation is... So evident in so many ways. Now, and I don't even want to spend a lot of time on this because we've talked about it some lately with all that's happening in the culture, but it's expressed, this chaos that we're currently experiencing is expressed in the gender wars, where suddenly, as a, as a nation, we no longer know, we've become confused even about what is a man and what is a woman. I mean, by the way, after all of human history, every person has known this is a man and this is a woman. And suddenly, in a matter of months, in America, we don't know anymore. We're confused about that. We're so confused about it that intellectuals, college professors, sit on the hills of power in their classrooms and in the halls of government and declare with great certainty and with mockery, if you would dare disagree with them, that a man can conceive and have a child. And suddenly, how did we become so confused? Let me suggest to you how. Because as a nation, we have moved from the God of order and we find ourselves sinking in disorder. That's how it's happened. The same is true, again, we've talked about this, but abortion. I mean, this this near religious zeal among some to protect the right, to to eliminate a child, to kill a child in the womb. And there's, there's this religious zeal that we must have this right. How did we get to this place as a nation? Well, we got there because we have said that the God of order is not welcome here. It's seen in the breakdown of the family. It's seen in rampant fatherlessness. It's seen in the soaring crime rate. All of these things are evidences that as a people, we have said to the God who in and of himself is order, we have said to him, you must leave. We'll do it on our own. And we have plunged into confusion and disorder. If you understand, say amen. Does that make sense? That's just where we are living. And so what needs to happen is this nation led by the church of Jesus needs to come back to the God of order. And if we will, we will see order return to our nation. Now, by the way, this is true of the family as well. Do you know that God has outlined, he has detailed, he has arranged an order for the family? He has. God's order for the family is this. If you're listening, say amen. Don't be confused about it. It's very simple. One man married to one woman. And those two, if they have children, training those children up together in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That is God's plan. And God's plan is that that husband will love his wife like Christ loves the church. And in love for his wife, he will lead her and lead that family. The husband is to lead the family. The wife is to follow the leadership of her husband. And together, they are to raise up those children. That is God's plan. He has spelled it out clearly. Now, I know some of you are saying, but Pastor, wait a minute. My marriage didn't last. It didn't work. What about me? Well, listen, God has mercy to help. Sullivan talked about it earlier. Grace to help in the time of need. And sometimes we find ourselves in a situation we didn't choose and we just have to deal with the circumstances. Other times we did choose it. We sinned and yet God offers forgiveness. But listen to me. The forgiveness and grace of God in our brokenness should never prevent us from lifting high God's ideal and his order. This is not only true socially in the culture or domestically in the home, it's also true individually in the person's life. That if, if I want order in my life, then my life needs to encounter the God of order. In fact, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians five and verse eight, he says, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children, of light. Well, how does my life go from darkness to light, from chaos to order? It happens through the new birth. So when we're converted to Christ, we're born again, then the chaos of sin is arrested and the order of God begins to replace that chaos. When the gospel light shines in, darkness must flee. When the word of God gives order and direction to my life, then my life begins to take order. When the Holy Spirit enables me because he indwells me to be able to live according to his word, that brings my life out of chaos and into order. Now, nowhere is that reality more beautifully illustrated in the scriptures than in Mark chapter five in the experience of the Gadarene. Do you remember the maniac of Gadara? In Mark chapter number five, Jesus encountered him when he landed in a boat on the eastern side of the Galilee, and this this man called the Maniac of Gadara comes out of the tombs to meet him. Now, this guy, you talk about chaos in the flesh. This guy's living in chaos. The scriptures tell us that he's demon-possessed by a legion of demons, maybe as many as 2,000 demons. He's wild. He doesn't live in a home. He lives in the graveyards. He lives among the tombs. He doesn't wear any clothes. He runs naked through the hills. He cuts himself. He screams. He fights with men. They hear him howling in the night. He is a wild man. And then he meets Jesus. And he's transformed by Jesus. In Mark chapter 8 and verse, or 5 and verse number 15 tells us that some people come to see Jesus. And when they came to see Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. Amen. That's what Jesus does, he turns chaos into order. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul declares, That if you know Jesus, if I know Jesus, there should be, as we wait for him to come, an order to our lives. That there should be an alignment to our lives, a correctness to our lives. And that this order has to do with our work, among other things. Write this down. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, God commands us to work while we wait for Jesus to come. God commands us to work. Now, if you look at verse number 11, you'll see the problem that Paul is addressing in the Thessalonican uh, church. Verse number 11, he says, For we hear, we have heard that there are some which walk among you disorderly, not working, at all. There's the disorder. There's the problem that he's identifying. Here's what's out of alignment in their lives. There's some who aren't willing to work. Now, let me stop and ask you a question. Is a poor work ethic and people not being willing to work at all, is that a problem in 2022? You think it is? Yeah. They laughed in the other two services as well. It's a problem. It's always going to be a problem within societies, within cultures. But here's the thing you need to know. In this passage, Paul's not speaking to that. He's not talking to the people in the culture who won't work. He's talking to the people in the church who won't work. Paul says, the problem is some of you know Jesus, and yet you're not willing to work. Do you see how he made this very specific in verse number six? He says to them in that verse, every brother, there are brothers that are walking disorderly. Uh, In verse number 11, uh, there are some among you who are not walking or working at all. And then in verse number 15, uh, those who don't work, don't count him as an enemy, but um, admonish him as a brother. So he says, if you're a Christian and you refuse to work, then your life is out of alignment with the order that God has laid out. Now let me ask you a question. It's really speculation because the Bible doesn't say, but why do you think these people in Thessalonica would not work? What was their problem? Why wouldn't they go to work? I mean, we could, we could just conjecture all day maybe since the Bible doesn't tell us, but, but let me suggest one reason maybe. Maybe they weren't working because what had Paul been telling them? Jesus is coming. And maybe they believed that Jesus was coming very soon. And they thought, well, if Jesus is coming... Why do I need to work? I'll just wait for Jesus to come. I don't know if that was their reasoning, but it might have been. It certainly was the reasoning for a group of Christians in the 19th century known as the Millerites. Have you ever heard of the Millerites? The Millerites were the followers of, I'm sorry to say, a Baptist evangelist by the name of John Miller. And Miller preached the truth in 1844. He was preaching that Jesus was coming again. Miller's mistake came and his heresy came when he tried to pinpoint a day when Jesus would come again. And so in August of 1844, John Miller preached to his followers that Jesus would return in October of 1844. In fact, I think the exact date was October the 22nd, 1844, Jesus is coming. Well, all of his followers thought, it's August. He's coming in October. September. It's not long. I can just wait for Jesus to come. And so many of them sold their possessions or gave their possessions away. They quit their jobs, and they just sat down and waited through the remainder of August and through September. And then October came, and October 15th got here, and October 21st dawned. And October 22nd dawned and they were ready. And October 23rd dawned and Jesus didn't come. And that resulted among the Millerites in an event known as the Great Disappointment. Which I just think makes a lot of sense. It would have been disappointing. Before there was a Great Depression, there was the Great Disappointment. Because they were led astray by this false teaching. They believed that Jesus was coming, and so they didn't work. Now, I don't don't know if that may have been the motivation behind these in Thessalonica not working. Maybe not. Maybe, Maybe they just felt entitled, right? They just felt like somebody owed them a living. Maybe they were just lazy. I don't know. But the point is they wouldn't work. Now, the text tells us that their refusal to work did not align with Paul's teaching. So Paul had been clear in his teaching, that as they waited for Jesus to come, they were to continue working. In fact, look at verse number six. He says, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walks disorderly among you, not after the tradition which he had received from us. The tradition means the precepts or the teaching. You know what we taught you. You're to be working. In fact, look at verse number 10. He tells Them, in verse 10, exactly what his teaching had been. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, this is what we commanded you, that if any man would not work, neither should he eat. That's Paul's teaching. Um, In fact, he said a similar thing in 1 Timothy chapter five. Let me read it to you, verse number eight. He writes to Timothy, but if any, provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, He has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Paul says, if you are a believer and you're not working and providing what's needed for your household, then you're out of alignment. You're living as an infidel. You're out of alignment with what God has commanded. So their refusal to work did not align with Paul's teaching. Secondly, it didn't align with Paul's example. Look at verses 7, 8, and 9. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us or follow our example we didn't behave ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for free, but we worked. Verse number eight, we wrought uh, in labor and travail night and day so that we would not be a burden to you. Again, not because we didn't have the power. He had the authority, but he wanted to provide for them an example. So Paul writes the letter to say, look, God is a God of order, and part of what God has ordered is that while you wait for Jesus, that you will work. And some of you aren't working, and you're out of order. And so I've taught you to work, and I've shown you how to work, and you need to do that. So Paul gives them four commands. I'm going to call them four work principles that Paul gives them, beginning in verse number 11. And I want to give you these work principles very, very quickly. Okay, So, So jot them down. Four work principles that Paul suggests to the Thessalonians. Number one, here's the principle, the first principle. He says, Talk less, work more. That's a pretty good principle, isn't it? Talk less, work more. You see this in verse number 12. He says, Now, them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they would work. Now, the word quietness really means just to settle or to be at peace. It doesn't necessarily mean to be silent. But it can mean that. His point is that you should just stop talking about it and do it. Let me ask you a question. Don't raise your hand because you might be sitting next to him. Have you ever known that person who talks a good game but never follows through? You ever known that person who always said, man, tomorrow, you know, I'm going to, next week, my ship's coming in and yet no, no follow through ever happens? Paul would say talk less, talk less and work more. And can i just affirm some of you in fact i think most of you maybe all of you you're hard workers and there's such dignity and honor in that hard work it doesn't matter what you do it doesn't matter if you're a if you're a brain surgeon or if you're an unskilled laborer it makes no difference you're anywhere on that continuum If you get up every day and you go to work to provide for yourself and for your family and to honor the Lord and you're putting your hands to labor steadily, God bless you. You're bringing honor and dignity to your Lord, to your life, and to your family. He says that you should talk less and work more. Number two, second principle, he says, provide for yourself and for your family. I've already read to you 1 Timothy 5.8, but look at it in verse number 12. We command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work. Verse number 12 says, and eat their own bread. Eat your own bread. Let me me translate that to you. If y'all listen, say amen. amen. Here's what he means. He means that you have no right to one piece of bread earned by another person's labor. It's not yours. You have no right to it. Now, they might give it to you, and that's fine. But it is not yours by default. They worked for it. They earned it. You should do the same and eat your own bread. That's, that's the principle that you should provide for yourself. By the way, this is not an unimportant discussion for us as a nation because as you've noticed, there is a swelling tide rising, particularly among the younger generations and the generations to come that is embracing socialism. And It's not impossible to think or imagine that in a few election cycles or a few years that socialism could become the economic model in the United States. and I just want to say to you now, if that happens, you hear me uh, say this, that if it happens, socialism is ungodly and it is unbiblical because it diminishes the value of work that God calls people to. He says that you should provide for yourself. Number three principle is you should mind your own business. (laughs) Mind your own business. That's what the Bible says, verse 11. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but they are busybodies. It's a little play on words. Because he says they're not working, they're not busy, but they're busy, busybodies. In other words, they're so, they have so much time on their hands because they're not willing to work, they have plenty of time to be involved in everybody else's business. He says, I want you to know that you need to mind your own business. Listen to 1 Thessalonians. It's one page back. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 says that you should study or aspire to be quiet, to do your own business, mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without and that you will have lack of nothing. Talk less, work more. Provide for yourself and your family. Mind your own business. That's three. You ready for number four? Number four is don't grow weary of work. Don't grow weary of work. He says this in verse number 13. But you, brethren, do not be weary in well-doing. I I believe what Paul is saying is to those who are working and they're seeing these among them who are not working, he's saying that don't you get discouraged. When you see their laziness or lack of work ethic or whatever, don't let that discourage you. You need to be faithful and not grow weary in your work. We all get weary in our work sometimes, but how do we not grow weary of the work or the the principle of working? I would suggest that the way that we not grow weary is that we turn our work into worship. In fact, notice uh, what the Bible says. Hold your finger in Thessalonians, turn to Colossians. It's just right in front of 1 Thessalonians, a few pages backwards. Look at Colossians chapter three and verse number 22. He says, servants, uh, insert the word employees there. Employees, obey in all things your masters. uh, Insert the word boss or manager. Employees, obey your boss in all things according to your boss in the flesh uh, in all things. Not with eye service, as men pleasers. Not only when they're watching, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do... Do it heartily, heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Listen, here's what Paul says: When you go to work tomorrow, you don't work for that company, and you don't work for uh, you know the boss. And if you're self-employed, you don't even work for yourself. What you do is you do you, what you do. Your work is to the glory of God. You work to Christ. You work for Christ, and He is the one watching. So turn your work into worship. And he tells us in the Second Thessalonians that as we turn our work into worship, that we will not grow weary. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 8 says that it's the Lord that gives us the strength to gain wealth. So if I receive the strength from the Lord and I work as worship, then I will not grow weary. Now, Paul says, for those who are among the church who will not work, they will not adhere to these principles, then the church is to respond in a very specific way. Look at verse number six. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walks disorderly among you. Look at verse number 11. I'm sorry, verse 14. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, know that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed or embarrassed. So what what is the church to do when someone in the church refuses to work? The church is to step back from that person. Now, he's not talking about excommunication, I don't believe. He's not talking about considering them as an unbeliever. In fact, he says that in verse number 15. They're your brother. But he says, step back. I'm convinced that what he is saying is, according to verse 10, if they're not willing to work, stop enabling them. Stop giving them food. Let them not eat. And that separation, that isolation, and that hunger will cause them to come around. That would be the hope. Now, do you know that this happens in churches? I'm sure nobody at Brookstone would ever do this, right? But this happens at churches where somebody is a part of a church and their, their main agenda is to get. And so they'll move from family to family and they'll, they'll just sort of start taking what they can get and, and asking for help and getting what they can. That family runs out of money or runs out of patience. They'll move on to another family and then they'll move on to another family. And, and if they run out of folks in that church and they'll move on down the road to another church and they're just looking to get. They're not willing to work. Paul says, stop it. Stop enabling that. And in fact I would suggest that this is a principle that would apply to our families as well because sometimes we have kids that grow up and they refuse to work and yet we keep enabling that refusal to work they claim to be Christians Paul says we need to work while we wait Now this brings up two questions I want to close with answering these two questions because they're important questions and one is to, is the question of benevolence or charity so what should we do When somebody needs some help, how do we respond to that? Is it okay to to help somebody? And in fact, we ought to be generous, right? So how can we live with generosity and yet maintain um, this principle? Well, I would say in the first place that he's talking to people in the church. So first of all, think about people outside of the church, people who don't know the Lord. Oftentimes, Jesus would meet a physical need in order to ultimately meet a spiritual need. And that's a good guiding principle for us. If we see somebody outside of the church and we can meet some physical need, we ought to uh, do that, meet that need if we can, to help them or to uh, meet a spiritual need for them. However, the principle applies. If they're simply refusing to work, then the call to generosity and benevolence is not to them it is to those who are willing and they might have a situation where they can't work. There's no forbidding in the Bible of helping somebody who's just in a tough spot. Everybody needs help sometimes. We ought to help one another in that regard. But he says, stop enabling people who just refuse to work. That's the first question of benevolence. The second question then, and I think this is such a good question, what about retirement? What about retirement? Retirement. If I'm commanded to work while I wait for Jesus to come, then is it okay if I retire as a Christian? And by the way, that question is being posed from a guy for whom retirement is on the horizon. Now, don't get too excited thinking you're getting a new pastor too soon. I mean, i got a good decade in me, I think, anyway, left. But but retirement is not that far out. So is retirement biblical? Does the Bible forbid it or encourage it? What does the Bible say about it? Well, we know that we're commanded to work while we wait. We also know that we're never commanded or encouraged to not work, but that in no way says that retirement is wrong. Just because you retire from a career or a job That doesn't mean that you stop working. In fact, I would suggest that for the Christian who comes to a place in life where they've prepared and they're ready and they can step away from a job to earn that income, that simply then frees that Christian up to work more fully for the Lord. So retirement doesn't mean I quit working. It just means that maybe I can shift my emphasis and my time in working for the Lord. In fact, I think that segues into this closing point, which is that God commands us to work for Him. He doesn't just command us to work until or while we wait, He commands us to work for Him. Because we ought to have a work ethic uh, in our life, but we also ought to have a work ethic in the church. Now, here's the thing what Paul is teaching us is that the gospel of Jesus Christ takes a life of chaos and disorder and it illuminates that life. And it brings it into the light and it gives it order. And then the Holy Spirit and the word of God and the body of Christ help that person to now walk in order and to live a life where we work as worship and we work for him. And then ultimately there comes a day when we no longer work because physically we're unable to work, we're, we're homebound or, or uh, bedridden, or we die. And Revelation chapter 14, I think verse thir- 13 says this, Blessed are they who die in the Lord for they, have, for they rest from their labors. There will come a day that we can rest. And it'll come after we've spent all of our days working in the, in the kingdom. Amen? I've said this to you before. When I die, if I die before you, and you come, and my body's laid out in a casket, and you come by, and I'm gonna be watching to see if you come by, by the way. <laughs> and you walk by, And you look at me, do not say, well, he looks so good. (laughs) Don't say that. I want you to say, he looks tired. (laughs) He worked himself to death. He's worn out. That's the way I want to leave this world. Worn out working for Jesus.